Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Kristen Catherwood, who is the Intangible Cultural Heritage Development Officer for Heritage Saskatchewan. She studied folklore here at Memorial University and has a particular interest in vernacular architecture and cultural landscapes. Born and raised in the deep south of Saskatchewan on a family farm, Kristen is passionate about the cultural landscape and folk life of the rural prairies. Uh, she, her graduate thesis, Every Place Had a Barn, the barn is a symbol of the family farm in southern Saskatchewan, resulted in the Barn Hunter blog, which chronicled her cultural explorations of rural life. In her work with ICH, Kristen uses storytelling as a tool to connect people with place and believes in empowering communities to tell their own stories. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Dale. Good to be here. It's nice to have you back uh, here on this ground, far from Saskatchewan, but uh, you were here for how many years? Uh, two years. Two years. Yep. And we yep. met in Keels, I think. I think that's where we first Actually, met. Actually, I think we first met in the Department of... The, the Department of Folklore at Munn here because we were talking about the field school oh, and then there okay. was the haunted hike. Yes. And then Keels. And then Keels. But Keels is really, yeah, the yeah. foundational. I've just, I forgot everything before that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I have a good memory, so. <laughs> at least one of us knows yeah. what we met. That's good. Um, so you were here and you did your, you did your field w- research back in, in your home, you're working on, on the barn project. Yeah. Uh, and then h- how long have you been with Heritage Saskatchewan now? Um, it'll be two years coming up this winter. Right. Yeah. And uh, what kinds of projects have you been working on with them? Um, well, as the, the title of my job suggests, it's actually based directly on your job title. Right, you copied me. <laughs> we copied you. We, we worked really hard <laughs> to try and come up with a different title. But at the end of the day, we're like, this is kind of what we're trying to do. So we'll just go with it. <laughs> Um, and then we'll steal some of the like legitimacy of Newfoundland and Labrador's work in ICH. So, um, so my first year, because this kind of work had never been done in the province before, it was a lot of just sort of um, f- figuring out how can we take ICH principles out into the community. And so the first year I spent a lot of time traveling all around the province um, doing community engagement workshops. And I did a workshop entitled Discovering Local Folklore, which was just all about learning about what intangible cultural heritage is, brainstorming local examples of intangible cultural heritage, and then helping communities come up with ideas for how they could actually implement some of the guidelines laid out in the UNESCO convention. There's four goals, as I'm sure you've talked about before. People just know those four (laughs) goals right off the top of their head for safeguarding intangible cultural heritage. But so basically, yeah, working with communities to just get the word out about ICH and um, yeah, start, um, you know, putting some foundations in place for communities to do their own projects. Yeah. And then in the second year now, I've started to narrow in a little bit and do some more focused projects. And actually, of course, last year you were out in Saskatchewan um, around around this time time in the fall. And so we did a whirlwind tour um, of of ICH workshops in the province. And I think we did a podcast while we were there with Kevin Power for Saskscapes. It all comes full circle. It comes full circle. (laughs) And um, and it was really cool, actually. I remember like to have you out 
out there because I, I know you so much in the context of Newfoundland and Newfoundland folklore. And so it was really exciting for me to be able to show you like my, my place and, and to um, introduce you to some of the folklore in Saskatchewan. So that was really, really cool. Um, and so, and from that, actually, I remember having discussions with you about sort of my desire to become a little bit more yeah, focused in some of my work and continue to do the introductory type workshops all around the province, but also focus in a little bit more on some specific kinds of topics. And at Heritage Saskatchewan, we're very interested in, um, in living heritage, which um, is a, a broader term than intangible cultural heritage. And, and uh, <laughs> I just don't feel qualified right now to really do a good definition of it. But basically, at Heritage Saskatchewan, we're very interested in how heritage can be used um, to help communities prepare for the future and to be resilient and sustainable. And, and so I was looking at what kind of project can I do that will um, have that kind of focus. And so I ended up doing my, my big focus this past year was a project in a, a town called Coronac, um, which is a, a coal mining town and has been for about a century and currently still has um, an active coal industry. They have a coal-fired um, electricity generation plant and also um, a lignite coal strip mine. So it's a huge, you know, it's a very important part of their economy. Um, but traditionally, there was also underground coal mining, which differs from the coal mining that was done here on the East Coast, where it was often companies and people worked for a company and lived in company housing. In Saskatchewan, people owned their own coal mines and, um, you know, people would homestead on land and if there was coal there they could just hmm. create a mine and all the coal was used for local heat because there's not a lot of trees in my part of Saskatchewan and so um, this local coal source enabled people to actually survive the early homesteaders and it, that continued up until about the 1950s and then there was a little lull and then they um, built this this um, power station in the 70s and now this industry supports Cornac and 12 other surrounding communities but of course um, its lifespan is limited um, for a number of reasons including the fact that just this power plant is scheduled to be decommissioned in 2029 and so I just looked at that community and thought this is a really interesting um, potential place to do a project because it's relevant right now it's not oh there was coal mining in the old days you know but that's how I got interested in it was meeting this fellow named Harold who was the last surviving um, person in that community who worked in the underground mines back in the 40s and so he's the only person with the living memory of that industry and that's what sparked the whole project but I thought this could really work because coal is still coal still king in Cornac and that's a way to maybe draw in people who normally when they hear the word heritage think oh that's not interesting that's not relevant I don't yeah. want to have, any, have anything to do with that but having coal so the project was called coal in Cornac and um, so that's about a five-month project, and I don't want to get into too much detail about it, but in the end, we ended up um, with a booklet, which I edited, but which was written mostly by local people, including a map, which Harold drew of where all the old mines used to be and what they were named, because there was no document of any kind that existed mm. before yeah. so there was and there's no tangible evidence left of these mines thank god because we don't need people falling into mine shafts obviously it's good that there's no evidence left but <laughs> it's too bad because younger generations like myself had no idea about all of these mines sure, and yeah. how important they were so that was part of the project but also you know when the mine was actually built and how local farmers formed um banded together and hired a lawyer and insisted that the land be reclaimed and not just left in big heaps as had been done elsewhere in the province and they they prevailed and now um, reclamation is compulsory in all strip mining across Canada and it started in Coronac, Saskatchewan huh. in the 1970s due to local 
landowners and farmers sort of just banding together, which was something I had no idea about either. And then up right to the present day with people who now, you know, generations of families have worked in the mine and the power plant. And so coal is what kind of keeps us all going. But really the reason people live there isn't necessarily because of the coal. It's because they have roots in agriculture. They're farmers and ranchers. But the coal industry helps them sustain that agricultural operation that is their family farm and so it was a really interesting project and so um, yes we came up with this booklet um, which looked at this heritage right up to the present day and also asked the question what happens when coal isn't in Kornak anymore because that is inevitable and everyone knows that but we don't no one really wants to talk about it yet right but I think right now a decade out before that reality comes is a good time to talk about it and so it's kind of an experiment for us at Heritage Saskatchewan to see how can we use heritage to to kind of um, look, look at contemporary, re- like relevant topics, topical things that are happening right now, pressing issues that are impacting our communities, and use the perspective of heritage to sort of ease into these really difficult um, situations that communities are facing. And so, yes, I did that through, um, you know, the kind of methods that I learned through my folklore work here, which was doing interviews with people. I did several video interviews, which I cut together into a documentary. We did this booklet. Um, and we had community engagement throughout, you know, there was youth involved, a grade 11 class, they ended up doing their own research about the, lo- the coal in the area and wrote as part of the booklet as well. So that was a big project and I see looking at the clock and I've been talking about it too long probably, <laughs> but it was a passion project. I'm going to be talking about it at the conference I'm here for, um, the Adapting Heritage Conference, and it was really great for us. So I'm looking forward to doing more projects like that, that are more focused in community and that are based on certain themes that are hopefully going to be relevant to a large segment of the population. And the next one hopefully will be actually in Valmarie and their grain elevator, which, right, which we, we went in, to yeah, last year. So yeah. I'm working on hopefully doing that. Um, so that's kind of been my focus this past year, as well as I did some videos on um, for Canada 150, just on the diversity of heritage in Saskatchewan. So all this to say, has been very busy. <laughs> <laughs> I want to I want to uh, stay in Karnak for for a minute. Yeah. And I just I want to know what the reaction of the community was. You because I know you had kind of a final presentation back yeah. to the community. Uh, so describe that and, and what people said or thought ab- right. about the whole process. And this will be airing after my presentation tomorrow, right? Because I'm yes. going to be giving away like gonna, all the secrets yeah, of my presentation. Yeah, but absolutely. Okay, yeah. So it's our, that was happened in the past. Yeah. It's happening in the future here. <laughs> so yes, um, in Cornac, I'll just tell the little kind of how this all shook out. When I started the project, I knew this one fellow, Harold, and he and I went to the local newspaper. Cornac is a town about 700, by the way go to the local newspaper and we talk to Sue because she's kind of like the lady in town who does everything, right? And so from that was our start. And from there, we had a little luncheon to kind of propose the idea of this project, which I had no idea what it was going to result in at the time. I just thought, let's just see what's going to maybe be possible. And we invited people from like the mine, like the mine um, manager and the power plant manager and people on the museum board and the tourism board and the economic development board and the town and the rural municipality, all these people. We invited them, paid for a lunch, six people showed up and hardly anyone that we'd invited showed up. It was u- it was the usual suspects at a heritage <laughs> luncheon, a few seniors from town who were interested in coal, right? which that's okay because they were the right six because they had an interest and they said you should talk to this person and this person and this person and so that's what I started doing and I started to gather together the people who would end up being interviewed for the documentary and who wrote um, articles or essays in the booklet and 
then I had enough material that I started to build upon and I realized, okay, this is what we're going to have at the end of this as a booklet and a documentary. And so then a couple months later, I had a project launch in the community and we had 35 people show up, which community people said that's a good turnout and there were young people here like guys who work at the mine they never come to anything in town so that was encouraging and then we had um, an ICH workshop because for part of this as well as doing this research I wanted to also involve the community and teach them some skills hopefully that they could use going forward and so I had like a, a an intangible cultural heritage workshop which I invited this class from the high school and then they ended up getting involved in the booklet and people from the community came and it was a really great workshop and that again like just it was a slow process of well it was pretty quick in a way but it was five months so just starting out small and then it grew as word of mouth spread and Arlene you know she got interviewed so of course she told all the ladies in her bridge club and of course they're going to come now because Arlene's part of it right and and same with these students in the high school like they're going to come and their parents are going to come because they're part of it and so drum roll um, the the big community presentation where we showed the documentary launched the booklet we had a local artist design the cover and we also presented like the original artwork to Harold the original fellow for this as like a, a gift to him so we had a big event and we had 100 people come which was my goal so in some ways I'm like I wish I'd exceeded my goal but I was very excited to get 100 people out in Coronac because that's a huge crowd (laughs) for a town of that size and again the diversity of the crowd you know it was all sorts of different people and we had the mine manager there and the plant manager because they'd been interviewed in the documentary so suddenly of course they want to show up because they were part of it um, but then they got to see the larger story of of which they were part and we even got money from the mine and and sas power and the rm in the town to help with the cost of the project so it ended up as far as i'm concerned being like really successful um, but what we're interested now at heritage saskatchewan going forward is we actually want to revisit the community and see okay so we had this great project but has it led to any change at all or have are the as the community you know one there was very little issues in this project i had very little problems but one thing that came out was i wrote an article in the local newspaper talking about the project and in it i mentioned you know you know the power plant's scheduled to be decommissioned in in 2029 and what's going to happen after that no one really knows and i heard you know that some people in town weren't weren't happy that i had mentioned that the plant would be closing you know and i was like well it, it will be. It will be closing. It yeah. will be. And that was kind of the point was to bring this up while it's still kind of this distant thing that people don't really want to deal with yet because they all know that it's a if when that happens, the community could very well just vanish overnight almost, really. Um, and so I thought we're thinking, our thinking behind all this at Heritage Saskatchewan is wouldn't it be great if we started talking about that now while it's still in the distance? But while you still actually have a chance to think about alternatives for your community, but doing this through the lens of heritage, talking about like, look at where we've come from. Like, this is this is who we are as a people. This is what we've done. Honoring that, because of course, coal is also a very controversial topic. And there's a lot, especially in rural areas, there's a lot of that sort of feeling of people just are dismissing coal and and um, and that makes people feel really um, alienated I guess because it's like this is how I make my living this is how I've raised my children this is how our town survives and now coal you know um, has this really bad reputation it's so controversial and then it makes people really defensive about what they do and so there is all of these different threads as part of this but I would say that overall to answer your question in a really long-winded way that the community was response is quite positive but we are looking forward to seeing but did did it has it sparked anything off yeah. or is that so it? so will there be follow-up like will yeah. you go back to that community and continue yes. to do work 
and I've gone back just to visit my people that I worked with while I was there and to, and I've heard a few things like well you know ever since that like there's I've, I've heard little rumblings that maybe there has been some discussions at say town council meetings and stuff which I'm really encouraged by but I haven't done any like official kind of work yet but my colleague Sandra Massey who does research for us at Heritage Sketch and I think coming up this winter when it is approaching a year since the project we are going to go back into the community and and connect with some of the people who were directly involved and also just people who kind of came out that night and just you know ask them what happened so we you know we don't really have the capacity to do a really thorough kind of survey or anything but we're going to do the best we can to try and ascertain if what we did actually had any kind of impact beyond just great we did some documentation of this important part of the community's heritage Mm -hmm. Um, we want to see does it have any does it have any legs going forward to help maybe promote you know resilience in the community or something we'll see yeah I, I know that you have a real interest in stories and storytelling yeah. uh, how does that impact your work or how do you use storytelling in the work that you do well I very much ascribe to the Dale Jarvis model <laughs> um, I definitely yeah and I, I got into storytelling when I was here in St. John's I was always a storyteller I just didn't know it until I moved here and was like oh my gosh you can do you can be a storyteller and so when I went back home, I, um, I've learned lots of stories since going back to Saskatchewan, and I use storytelling a lot in my workshops. I often start my workshops off with this, with this one legend, which is from my area, which is the Big Muddy Badlands about outlaws and cowboys, and, and it's a real, it's a, it's a piece of oral folklore that I've heard, like I, I learned it from ranchers in the area, and so I tell that um, to start off my workshops and get people thinking about what is intangible cultural heritage and place and, and story, and so storytelling is a huge part of what I do. I use story all the time. I, I think you need to tell the story. Oh, gosh. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. So down in the Big Muddy, where you're more likely to run into a cactus than a cottonwood tree, there are millions of years of geological time revealed in the exposed hillsides and buttes. Down in the Big Muddy, where the summer sun is scorching hot and the winter wind is bitterly cold, the only shelter is down in the coolies. Now they call the Big Muddy Badlands, bad land, because it's bad for farming. But it's good for other things, good for growing grass, good for grazing, good for hiding if you ever had a need for it, which certain fellas did once upon a time. Now down in the Big Muddy there is a line, some call it the medicine line, others call it the 49th parallel, and some simply refer to it as the border. Whatever you want to call it, it's invisible. You can't actually see the thing, but it's very real because it slices the Big Muddy in two. So that part of it is down there in Montana, in America, and part of it is up here in Canada, in Saskatchewan. Now, there was a few fellas living about 100 years ago or so who made good use of that line because, you see, if they were on the American side of the line and they got into a spot of trouble and they were being pursued by any sort of law enforcement down there, well, as soon as they crossed that line, the sheriff couldn't follow them anymore. And same thing on the Canadian side. If they got into any trouble, Northwest Mounted Police, who policed the area, they couldn't follow them past that line. And so the outlaws, people like Dutch Henry and the Pigeon Toad Kid, made good use of that. They'd steal cattle and horses on the Canadian side of the border, run them down across that line, sell them on the Montana side, enjoy the proceeds in the local saloon for a day or two, then turn around, steal back the same cattle and horses and maybe a few besides, drive them back up across that line and sell them again on the Canadian side. So two profits, one prize. But of course, people weren't thrilled about what they were up to. And so when they were on the Canadian side, the Northwest Mounted Police did whatever they could to try and track these guys down. But they had a few tricks up their sleeves. 
there's a few caves, which if you go on the Big Muddy tours out of Kornak, you can see the famous Sam Kelly Outlaw Caves. And sometimes they had to make a simple run for it. And in this, they had an unlikely ally down on the shores of the Big Muddy Lake, which is an alkaline lake, if you know what that is. There was a wild roan mare. And when those outlaws came running over those hills, you know, hooting and hollering, maybe shooting their pistol off, she would, of course, spook. And she'd take off across the lake because she knew where it was safe to cross. And the outlaws would follow after her and get safely to the other side. But by the time the Northwest Mounted Police officer came over the coulee, the wild roan mare and the outlaws and their stolen quarry were already across the lake. He didn't know the way across, and so he had to go all the way around a distance of more than 20 miles. And by that time, of course, the outlaws had made off Scots free once more. And so I tell that tale in pretty much every workshop I do. And that is one that I, it was in a little bit condensed form when I first heard it from a rancher named Paul. <laughs> but his ranch overlooks that very lake and that very coulee. And it's actually called, all the coolies have names. And that particular one is called the Rotenmare Coulee. So it's a true legend because who knows where that story came from, if the name came first or the story came first, if there really was a wild Rotenmare. Um, but it's, yeah, it's one of my favorite stories because I think, and I like to pull it apart and ask people, like, is that a true story? Yeah. You know, and, and, and you always get that. Well, yes, I think it is. And people are like, no, like, probably not. And I'm a historian and I need to <laughs> know the facts. And I like to say, like, oh, let's talk about what is true about it because everything about that story is true except for if there really was a wild roan mare. But Dutch Henry, pigeon-toed kids, those were real outlaws. And we know that because they, you know, ended up being persecuted and they're in the Northwest Mounted RCMP archives you know and so it's a great story because it does combine truth and like historical truth and folklore mm -hmm. and it's still told and that's sort of the thing i'm interested in i say why do these ranchers why did i've heard it from more than one rancher now in different versions and one version the, the mare is blind just to add a little bit of interest but i ask you know why do these ranchers tell me that story why do why do we tell the story from 100 years ago and i mean there's different reasons but i think it's because it tells us about place and place tells us about the people who live there and so in a way by telling a story like that these ranchers are telling me something about themselves right and so I, I love storytelling for how it can bring things home in that way for mm. people and I, I find it really effective yeah yeah one of, one of the other stories that uh, maybe I'll if you can share a, a version of it is the the story of the old wives lake this, yeah. and this is a story that you told me when we were in that area yeah. in, in Saskatchewan which is further north than yeah it is it's further north from the big muddy the but big it's in muddy, the same yeah. general kind of area actually these it's this really um, treeless plains the high plains uh, very rugged country and Old Wise Lake is another alkaline lake, which basically means it's um, it's hardly has any water in it. <laughs> it's it's just this kind of like salty expanse, really. But when it does have water in it, it's full of birds. It's huge and migratory bird. Um, people come from all over to go and, and look at the birds there. But anyway, what's much more interesting about Old Wise Lake than birds is how it got its name. And the story goes that about 200 years ago, this was um, before the settlers came in and there were some fur traders around and I think it was them who collected this story and that's how I've learned from it. It's told by different people in different ways. But the way that I know it is that um, there was a Cree hunting party and they were in the vicinity of Old Wives Lake and a hunting party consisted of basically members of the whole community, you know, old women, children, young men, young women, um, and they were, of course, following behind the buffalo and because it was the old women's job to actually process the buffalo. So they were they had to go along on these hunting parties. But because the buffalo were becoming a little bit scarce in those days, the Cree had wandered out of their own territory and they had come into the Blackfoot territory, which was around Old Wives Lake. 
and a couple of Blackfoot scouts actually discovered them and there was a little bit of a a little bit of a quarrel shall we say and the scouts retreated but the Cree were really worried because they knew that the scouts had probably gone back and they were going to call up a war party and they were going to come out and probably you know have a, a major battle with the Cree and they were very concerned about their prospects especially because they had so many women and children with them and they were discussing what they could do they were quite far from their home territory and you know the young men were ready they were ready for the fight they were ready to do it but the old wives the old women counseled caution and they said you know i think that this is what we should do you should go home now take what buffalo we have hunted and go and we will stay and we'll tend the fires all night long and we'll sing so that the blackfoot think we're preparing for war and that we haven't left you go and save yourselves and we'll stay and face the blackfoot and that's what they did so the young people left they went back towards their home territory in the Copel valley and the old women stayed and they tended the fires and they sang and at dawn the blackfoot war party came upon them and found that it was just the old wives and in their rage massacred them all and now the story goes that if you go to old wives lake there's a certain island which is apparently where these women had tended these fires that on a certain night when the wind's blowing just the right direction you can hear the old wives singing their war songs all night long so mm-hmm. i haven't been there at dusk to test it out but i believe it i'll come back sometime and we'll we'll do that we'll go in the middle yeah. of the night yeah yeah <laughs> it's a cool place um I, I'm, I'm curious you know i know i know that uh one of the important pieces of Heritage Saskatchewan's work is is kind of the, the telling and or helping share some of these indigenous mm-hmm. stories. Yeah. And when we were there, we were at Wanuskewin, mm-hmm. and we met a beader. Yeah, Bonnie. Bonnie, Bonnie who was amazing. I thought she, she was is. fabulous. She's and so you, wonderful. And you've done a little bit of filming with her yeah. fairly recently. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier just briefly that um, for Canada 150, we as a heritage organization, we needed to recognize it. But we also realized that in Saskatchewan and all across the Canada, there's very differing perspectives on what Canada 150 means and that it's not celebratory for everyone. And so in doing this video series, I wanted to make sure that we had a variety of perspectives. And the video series isn't it's not just about Canada 150. It was just sort of under that umbrella of the Canada 150 year. Um, the one of the videos was great. It was Russell Fyant, a, a Métis fellow, who talks about how for the Métis Canada 150 is not at all celebratory, which if you have a chance, go on Heritage Sass YouTube and check it out. But anyway, so I had met Bonnie with you at Wanuskewin. She's a young Cree woman from Atakakoop, First Nation, north of Saskatoon. But she now lives in Saskatoon and works at Wanuskewin, which is a um, an ancient site, an archaeological site, basically, that now has, you know, like a museum and visitor center. And they're applying for UNESCO World Heritage status. Um, and she does traditional, not just beadwork, all kinds of traditional indigenous um, art, you know, um, beading. She makes moccasins, mittens. She works with hide. Um, she's, and she's a true artist and just such a, an eloquent, wonderful um, person. And I thought when I was thinking of this video series, I, I wanted to be as representative of the many different cultures in Saskatchewan as I could. And so for Cree culture, I asked Bonnie if she would share her story, which she did. And again, you can find it on our Heritage Saskatchewan YouTube channel. But um, I filmed her doing some of her beadwork and talking about the importance of that tradition for her and how it's really and she didn't this isn't her words it's more mine but how it's kind of a bridge between the older generation and the younger generation and how you know in her parents and grandparents time they had to kind of go underground with this stuff they weren't allowed to practice their cultural traditions and uh, so 
um, and now she's saying like her generation, which is my age, the younger sort of millennial, they are very open about sharing these traditions and they're taking things that are ancient, like beadwork, the methods of beadwork, um, and also the certain styles that are used and using them now in contemporary ways. So she does um, very traditional beadwork like for regalia, for powwow and, and round dance and things like that. But she also does it for like cell phone cases and earrings and leather jackets that you wear out on the street. And I think she'd be okay with me saying this. She calls it niching it up. <laughs> and niche is a Cree word. I think that means, oh, I might be wrong. I think it means maybe friend. And it's kind of become slang for things that are sort of like indigenous, like young indigenous people. Like there's a uh, clothing company out of um, Saskatchewan called uh, Niche Gear, Nietzsche Gear, you know. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of taking this word and using it as a... Um, a point of pride and identity and so she talks about niching things up so using beadwork to niche up contemporary dress and contemporary kind of the accoutrement of our 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 current society like cell phone cases and using them as a way to you know say this is who i am as a young cree woman and i just think it's amazing yeah if people want more information about Heritage Saskatchewan, where do they where do they go? Um, you can like us on Facebook, Heritage Saskatchewan. You can um, go to our website, www.heritagesaskatchewan.ca, and yeah, check out our YouTube channel. We've got lots of stuff on there besides my Canada 150 series. So great, check it out. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Dale. I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our production assistant is Tara Barrett. We would love to know what you think of the show. Leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page or tweet us at HFNLCA. Thanks for listening.